0: It's a short week, but we're surprisingly long on content. This week, we take a look at a neat little tablet from TCL, and after that, you get to stroll through the mind of me for just a little bit. It's the Benefit of a Doubt Podcast. Hello. Welcome to the Benefit of a Dowd podcast. I'm your host, Adam Dowd, and this week, we're taking a look at the TCL tab from Verizon through the lens of two other tablets that I've already reviewed this year. Then, as promised, I'm going to talk about a new laptop that came my way, but I'm not reviewing it just yet. That will come, I promise. Rather, I'm going to take you through the journey that is my thought process on how I ended up buying this new computer, and we'll get to that. But first, we need to get to the news of the week. If you live in the UK and ordered a PS5, you may have gotten a surprise package on your doorstep. The surprise is that the package did not contain a PS5, but rather cat food or a George Foreman grill. Now, Far be it for me to look down on any dietary choices you make for your pets or deny the usefulness of a good George Foreman grill. And by the way, fun fact, I once barbecued marinated chicken for 30 people on a George Foreman grill. And you know what? It was amazing. Anyway, it seems that Amazon workers in the UK are making off with PlayStation 5s and delivering something that decidedly is not a PlayStation 5. Other users are reporting that Amazon delivery drivers are driving up to their houses, marking the package as delivered, and driving away, having not gotten out of the truck at all. Now, obviously, these are despicable acts, and I understand that the gaming system is in high demand, but come on, people. It's a gaming console. Again... I'm not trying to yuck anybody's yum here. I've already made it very clear that I am not a gamer, but still, it's just a PS5, people. It's not even the most expensive thing I've ever ordered from Amazon. I'm just not sure why the demand is so high that you risk your livelihood in order to have one. Now, granted, the livelihood is that of an Amazon worker, and it's probably not all that awesome to begin with, so maybe you're not losing out on all that much, but I have to think that Miles Morales is just not worth potential jail time but then again, this is the United Kingdom, so really, how bad could it be? I'm just trying to work out in my mind what a yard conflict must look like. Pipe down there, my good man! And you implying that Air Grey is the superior tea? That is something by which I cannot abide. I'm afraid we must resort to fisticuffs. Hell, they probably even have a PlayStation 5 in the common area, so maybe you'll get what you want after all. TikTok, which may or may not have been banned by the time you hear this, has its first 100 million follower creator. She's a 16-year-old dancer from Connecticut named Charlie, with an I, D'Amelio. D'Amelio has climbed to fame and fortune through the social media platform on which she mostly dances, vlogs, and... Okay, more dances, but I'm honestly not sure. I'm not one of the hundred million, but I've read a bit about her and her family, and it's actually a very fascinating climb into stardom, and trust me, her family is not passing up on this opportunity. Charlie herself has appeared in a Super Bowl commercial, has a movie appearance coming out soon, plus she's launched a makeup and fashion lines with top-tier manufacturers. Her sister Dixie has a new album coming out soon, and thank God, because with a name like Dixie Demilio. Her occupational options were fairly limited. Even Charlie and Dixie's parents have their own YouTube and Instagram accounts. So what does this all mean? It's still rather hard to actually monetize TikTok. There's no ad revenue, so at best you're looking at product placement and endorsements, but TikTok's fame in Charlie's case has translated to other avenues, which can't be understated. Still, though, if TikTok wants to hold on to creators, especially in light of all the TikTok clones that are coming out with reels on Instagram and, by the way, the subject of our next story, TikTok better get that figured out fast and, oh yeah, maybe not get banned in the U.S. while they're at it. Speaking of TikTok clones, do you remember Snapchat? Snapchat was that social platform that everyone copied until people started saying, LOL, what's Snapchat? In fact, Snapchat is so far out of the realm of thought these days that I literally called Snapchat Spotify three times in the script before I realized my mistake. Anyway, Snapchat is copying TikTok by releasing Snapchat Spotlight, but it's going one further pledging to pay out $1 million per day to the most popular creators on the platform. Basically, the super popular content will get a share of $1 million based on some formula that Snapchat worked out. So yeah, Spotify, I mean Snapchat, has gotten so desperate that it will literally be paying users to use the platform. Snapchat says the rewards will continue through at least the end of the year, so it'll be interesting to see if anyone starts using that platform. What I can promise you is that Benefit of a Doubt will not. So before you go scrambling to remember that password that you created back when you first signed up for Snapchat and then saw it was stupid and then stopped using it, don't worry. You won't be missing any Benefit of a Doubt content from that platform. One point of frustration that American consumers have when purchasing smartphones has been carrier lock-in, specifically phones sold by carriers that are locked to those carriers. To some of my more worldly listeners, that sounds bat-crap crazy, but them's the facts here in America. I'll give you an example. The LG Wing review that's coming up is locked to Verizon. The T-Mobile Rebel, well, okay, actually, it kind of makes sense that that would be locked to T-Mobile, but actually, now that I think about it, I haven't actually tested to see if it is locked up T-Mobile. Anyway, in the United States, there's an act called the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, or DCMA, which is aimed at digital copyright law. Well, carriers grabbed onto a section of that law called Section 1201, which talks about, quote, the circumvention of copyright protection systems. Now, What we call the spirit of the law revolves around safeguards that music publishers put into, like, CDs, which prevents them from being copied, but which are circumvented by a 99-cent Sharpie from Walmart. But phone makers said, ooh, 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 we can prevent people from circumventing our phones, and... Just no. The thinking is when you buy a phone on contract, those digital locks prevent you from using the phone on another carrier, so therefore they are protected under the same law. That being said, the Electronics Frontier Foundation is pursuing several legal paths towards getting rid of this stupid, stupid consumer hostile practice. And I'm not a lawyer, and I've already talked about this for a long time, so I'm going to leave you to click on the link in the show notes to go check it out. But friends, there is hope. This next story is actually more of a PSA to highlight a fun video I came across. There's a YouTube channel dedicated to fixing up and repairing really old and messed up toy cars. You know, the die cast metal cars that you can pick up from, you know, Batman and whatnot. Well, this video centers around the DeLorean from Back to the Future. This toy must have gone through all kinds of hell on its way to this guy because at the beginning of the video, it is seriously messed up. I'm guessing both the fire and being buried were involved. But this guy takes the toy, disassembles it into its various components, and restores them to pristine, or actually better than pristine condition. He rebuilds parts from scratch, he sands parts down, paints them, and even covers the floor and ceiling of the car in a sort of fabric like you'd find in an actual car. Now, this is not the kind of thing I'd normally settle down with a bucket of popcorn to watch, but A, it's back to the future, and B, you really have to admire the skill, dedication, and craftsmanship that goes into restoring something like this. It's kind of a bucket list video to watch, so give it a look. There's a link in the show notes. Oh, 2020 you rascal. You weren't quite done with us yet, were you? Officers from the Utah Department of Public Safety were out on a routine helicopter mission to count bighorn sheep when someone caught something odd out of the corner of their eye. They turned the helicopter around and headed for a nearby canyon where they discovered what can only be described as a 2001 Space Odyssey style monolith Just sticking out of the Utah desert sand, so... Naturally, they investigated. it. The monolith is approximately 12 feet tall, silvery metal, and has no markings of any kind on it. It's just a tall metal beam jutting out from the floor of a desert. According to investigators, the monolith was not dropped out of the sky, but rather deliberately planted there by persons unknown. The internet automatically kicked off the alien conspiracy theories, and while that would not surprise me even a little bit, considering how this year has gone... It was probably people. No artist or other group has come forward to claim credit, so it remains a mystery for now. The government is keeping the location undisclosed for now while it decides if it needs or wants to investigate. Plus, they really don't want a 12-foot metal wall collapsing on some idiot tourist with space fantasies, thus carving up what little tourism Utah already has. You might think of Tesla and SpaceX as plucky little startups that are making electric cars cool again or shooting rockets into space. But keep in mind that the man behind those companies just surpassed Bill Gates as the second richest man in the world. That's right. Elon Musk now holds the number two title. Well, technically, they're tied with $128 billion with a B dollars each, but at last count, Musk sat at $128.7 billion, while Gates had a paltry $128.5 billion. What a noob. And when asked about it, Musk replied, Well, that's what you get for giving all your money away to charity, you dumb bastard. I, I, I'm kidding, he didn't actually say that, but let's be real, he probably thought it. Anyway, Tesla stock in particular has been crazy good this year, rising by approximately 500% or so during a pandemic and economic crisis, and honestly, good for Musk and good for Tesla. I've been known to harp on Musk in the past, and let's be honest, you have to be pretty smart to do what he's done over the past several years. That doesn't mean I won't call him out when he says something dumb or when karma comes around to kick him in the tail, but overall, I respect the man for pushing technological boundaries and somehow making it profitable. You may remember Amazon Sidewalk, which is a low-power network of devices designed to create a sort of mesh network of devices that can do some really cool things throughout a neighborhood. Notably, the first item to use Amazon Sidewalk will be Amazon Fetch, which is a dog collar that can use Sidewalk to locate a lost pooch, similar to what products like Tile do. If a dog gets loose and passes by a Sidewalk-enabled device three blocks away, you can get that location sent to you over the anonymous network. Well, Amazon is rolling out Sidewalk in the very near future and it's coming to a selection of Echo and Ring devices and it's on by default. What that means is that a majority of Americans who buy or already own these devices will be anonymously broadcasting and receiving signals from sidewalk devices like Fetch. But in the fine print, you're also giving Amazon access to use some of your internet bandwidth to transmit anonymous signals to other devices in the network and, by the way, back to Amazon's home base as well. Now, Amazon promises to cap this bandwidth heist at just 500 megabytes, which is not a lot, all things considered. But still, Amazon isn't really planning on, what's the legal term that I'm looking for? Oh, right, actually telling people that they're doing it beyond the normally incomprehensible terms of service. In the long run, I like what Sidewalk is doing, and I really don't think that 500 megabytes of data will make or break any network or Wi-Fi connection, but Amazon you gotta tell people and you gotta tell them clearly what's going on because this will look bad if it ever becomes a thing i mean it's kind of a thing now but if people ever get mad about this that's gonna be hard to recover from so get out in front of it now that's friendly advice from your buddy your pal adam And finally, you may have noticed last week when we talked about the Apple M1 chip and the reviews that dropped from bloggers and tech reporters aplenty. Well, it's not all wine and roses, as Patrick Moorhead of Forbes will tell you. Morehead has a review MacBook Pro that he bought, presumably, and we'll get to why I can presume that in a second. His experiences with the MacBook Pro are not awesome. Specifically, Morehead seems to work in an enterprise-oriented vertical and uses things like Office Suite, Logitech apps, and the Adobe Suite and more. Now, I get where he's coming from. Most, if not all, of the apps that Moorhead tested were not native Arm on Mac apps. They're enterprise software that businesses and larger corporations use. And in that sense, his concerns are 100% justified. He had crashes and bugs and error messages on many of the apps and services that he tested. So, yeah, I get that he's not having the amazing experience that other reviewers reported last week. But, Moorhead starts off his review by using the term, air quotes, Apple Chosen Reviewers, which to me strikes an unnecessarily critical view of not only the reviews, but the reviewers themselves. Throughout the piece, he references, quote, Apple and early reviewers, and the fact that they didn't find all these warts and foibles. Now, I can understand the frustration, totally get that, but the implication that those reviewers, like, what, held back negative opinions because they were Apple-chosen is disingenuous at best. I think it's more likely, respectfully, that if you're going to buy an Apple MacBook and then load Microsoft Office and Microsoft Teams and Microsoft Skype and Microsoft Xbox controller, well, dude, maybe you just brought the wrong laptop. I'm just saying. Additionally, and I believe David Ruddock brought up this point, but most tech reviewers that published early reviews of the MacBook basically live in web browsers. We're not loading Microsoft everything onto our computers just to get to work. For example, I switched to a brand new computer this past weekend. I loaded OneDrive and Google Drive, and I was able to start working literally within minutes. The only exception to that was Adobe Suite, which I had to download and install those. But everything else that I do is in a browser, or in the cloud, or both. So yeah, our use cases are definitely different than yours. And that being said, many reviews that I read of a new macbooks did indeed account for the adobe suite many others did point out occasional stutters from rosetta 2 apps and i need to be absolutely clear on this point patrick your position is 100% warranted nay it's necessary there are a lot of people in the enterprise and microsoft space and they need to read reviews based on what they do not based on what some millennial who regularly works out of a starbucks does and speaking of those millennials not a single one of them, and I mean not one, Patrick, tried to install WinZip. Come on, Patrick, WinZip? Are you serious? It's 2020, not 2002. If you're really going to put pen to paper and grouse about a brand new computer that doesn't run WinZip, I guess I just got nothing for you. Long story short, you are a very different use case compared to the dozens of Apple-chosen reviewers, and your opinion is just as valid. In fact, I would argue that people like you should be among the Apple-chosen reviewers because you represent a crap ton of people. But, please, do not put down your fellow journalists to make your review sound better, or, since you write for Forbes, let me put this in a way that you'll understand don't serve up a nasty surprise for your fellow reviewers because, and I mean this sincerely, you won't believe what happens next. at a lot of tablets on this show, and it's basically because I really like the idea of tablets. They're super niche, don't get me wrong, and they're certainly not for everyone. In fact, if you have a big enough phone, they're not really for anyone. But all the same, I love them because they're just a bit bigger than a phone and much more portable for consumption like streaming. In my world, tablets are basically Netflix boxes with, frankly, little else to offer. But... In this case, I'm using the term Netflix to talk about streaming like most people use Kleenex to talk about facial tissue. It's just in the lexicon, but in my case, I'm also using the term Netflix to talk about other forms of consumption like reading, light web browsing, even shopping, and super light tasks like that. There's an experience that you can get on a tablet that you can't get on a phone or don't want on a laptop, even a two-in-one. So when Amazon released the Kindle Fire HD 8 Plus this summer, I grabbed one up. And when Lenovo asked me to take a look at the Lenovo Smart Tab M8 with Google Assistant, I said, "Sure thing." And when TCL launched a TCL Tab on Verizon, I suddenly had three very similar tablets to take a look at. Now, I've already done a full review on the Kindle Fire HD 8 Plus, and I've already looked at the Lenovo Smart Tab M10 with Google Assistant, which is basically the Smart Tab 8 minus two other way around. Sorry about that. You know what I mean. Now I've got the TCL tab to look at, and while I probably could do a nice review of just that one and call it a day, I've decided to complicate my life and this podcast episode by looking at it through the lens of the other two. Because I can, and because this tablet actually resides at the intersection between these two tablets. In the Venn diagram of the Amazon Kindle Fire HD 8 Plus and the Lenovo Smart Tab M8 with Google Assistant, this tablet lies at the center circle with a refreshingly short name of TCL Tab. God, that felt good just saying that. And if you're wondering how I arrived at that conclusion, look no further than the hardware. The plastic casing of the TCL Tab is not air quotes, premium, as the Lenovo Smart Tab, but it has a nice soft touch back, which is far, far, far superior than the Amazon Kindle Fire HD 8 Plus. And folks, let's just get down to brass tacks here. When it comes to build quality materials-wise, the Kindle Fire is a hunk of plastic. The CCL Tab is a hunk of nice plastic, and the Lenovo Smart Tab is the best with a glass and metal finish. But this is a tablet meant for consumption. I have no problem with the TCL Tab's bill, but I have to call the Lenovo Smart Tab the premium one because it's glass and metal, and I don't want to harp, so let's move on. The TCL Tab also has a feature that neither of the other two have, a fingerprint sensor, which yes! In this case, the power button doubles as a fingerprint sensor, which I love so very, very much. When it comes to biometrics, finger is always greater than the face, and this is coming from an iPhone user with Face ID, which I'm sure I'll talk about more on another show. I'd like to say that in the absence of a full Face ID system, a fingerprint sensor is a must, but you know what? Even when there's a Face ID sensor, you need a fingerprint, Apple, so just add a fingerprint sensor, Apple, and everybody else, but, you know, mostly Apple. On the inside, I have two complaints about this tablet. The first is the paltry 32GB of onboard storage, but there are two caveats with that. First, the storage is expandable, so there's that. Plus, when I asked a TCL rep about this, they answered quite fairly that the 32GB iPad is $329 while this 32GB tablet is under $200, and this one comes with LTE connectivity. That is a very good and fair point, but that being said, Android tablets are not, and likely never will be, iPads. Speaking of which, I mentioned earlier that this is a Verizon tablet, so yes, there is LTE connectivity. In the case of my review unit, I did not have a Verizon SIM, so I wasn't able to test that at all. But the SIM tray is there, and presumably if you buy one from Verizon, you'll be getting a plan and whatnot. That's 4G capability BT-dubs, not 5G, but then it's Verizon, so it was never really 5G to begin with. On the inside, you've got a Snapdragon 665, which performs... eh... Fine. Again, for me, tablets are Netflix boxes, so it doesn't need to be super powerful. There's 3GB of RAM, which matches both of the other tablets. There's no wireless charging, but the tablet does have reverse charging, which could be a nice add-on if you happen to fall in that very, very small niche. Overall, this is a nice-feeling tablet that's easy to hold, small, and lasts for days of light use with a 5,500 mAh battery, though I can't speak to how it holds up with cellular connectivity. Oh, one other note here. The other criticism I had, the haptics on this tablet are outright terrible mush. There's really no other way to describe them. I was actually tempted to just turn them off, and frankly, I'm not sure why TCL bothered to put such a terrible haptic engine in this thing in the first place. I would have rather just saved five bucks, to be perfectly honest. Anyway, onward. On the software side, the tablet ships with Android 10, which is, you know... Fine, Android 11 is out, I'm just saying. But this is a mostly stock Android build with the Google feed on the left and the app drawer. I did not go with gestures on the tablet because it's a tablet, so I much prefer the navigation bar. I sure wish TCL would steal the productivity mode from Lenovo smart tab that I love so much, but... I get it. Of course, I wish every OEM would steal the productivity mode from the Lenovo Smart Tab, so yeah. I also wish that TCL brought over its folder mechanic of swiping between folders, but folders work differently on tablets than they do on phones, so I get why they didn't do that. The main thing that I miss from the Lenovo tablet is the dock and Google Assistant that Lenovo brings. Now, I don't expect TCL to outright steal that idea, but I'm just saying, TCL, it's a good idea. But the TCL tablet is light enough to, you know, sit on a table between Netflix binges and reading sessions. It's noteworthy to point out that this tablet became my primary reader for Kindle books, even above my Kindle Paperwhite, which is a distinction that no other tablet, including the Kindle Fire HD 8 Plus, has ever claimed. The performance on this tablet is not the best, but as I've said time and again, how fast do you need it to be to be a Netflix box? You're not playing Call of Duty on this thing, so for a light, portable consumption device... It definitely fits the bill. In terms of price, it's not a lot to ask $200 for a tablet with LTE connectivity. It's more expensive than the Kindle Fire HD 8 Plus, but it's also better built with a better operating system and a fingerprint sensor. Overall, though, all of these tablets are good with what they do, which is to consume media, and that's all you can really ask for. All of them are on sale for Black Friday, and if you forced me to spend my money on one... I have to think that TCL gets it. Honestly, the fingerprint reader is that important to me. Plus the ability to actually have a decent app ecosystem, which Amazon just does not have. You can check out links to any of these devices on Benefitofedoubt.com, so head on over there this weekend if you're looking to score a deal. not a big fan of change and i haven't had to buy a new computer in years as a matter of fact my macbook pro that i've been using for all this time was actually my old work laptop that they let me keep when they laid me off which was you know nice of them except for the whole laying me off part and by the way if you're on ios and you need to mark up a document check out i annotate by Branchfire. i worked for that company for four years and they gave me a laptop that lasted another five it's a fair trade So anyway, back in late 2018, the battery started to swell in the MacBook, and I got it replaced just before I went to CES in 2019. Well, the replaced battery is starting to swell again, so it was time to admit defeat and start shopping for a new laptop. So the first big decision... Windows or Mac? And it's not a simple question. First of all, I wanted to stick with Mac for a very practical reason. I've been using a Mac for five years now, and it's frankly what I'm used to. I know my workflow, so it's very simple for me. Plus, I've used a few different Windows laptops before, and sometimes a keyboard or trackpad can be temperamental, and I'm really frankly nervous about that. Additionally, I use GarageBand on the Mac to record my audio, and the voice setting for GarageBand has a very distinct sound that I really like, and I haven't been able to recreate an audition on Windows. It's a stupid reason to buy a $1,500 laptop. I'll be the first to admit that, but it's still a reason, and by the way, in the next few weeks, I'm going to sound different as I attempt to recreate that sound, just FYI. Plus, not necessarily on the podcast, but in general, I spend a lot of time transferring files from phones and cameras to my laptop. Often I use Google Photos, but if I need original quality, I need to pull the file directly from the phone. On iPhone, that's easy. Airdrop. But on Android phones, I have to use Android File Transfer, which is god-awful buggy piece of crap software that Google made in back in 1992 or something, and then forgot it existed. So there's that as well. Now, you might recall a couple of weeks ago that I decided I would be spending the next few months toting the iPhone 12 around. Plus, I use an iPad, and I've never had the option of using my iPad as a second screen because my MacBook was too old. Wah, wah. So, there was some reason for wanting to stick with a Mac. Not necessarily good reasons, but reasons. As for Windows, well, it's a lot easier to manage files on Android phones from Windows. It's been a while since I've tried to move files from an iPhone to Windows, but I'm sure I can find a workflow that suits me. And what I know is that I won't be any worse than Android file transfer, which is just flat out bad. Anyway, Windows offers a wider variety of hardware options. Apple pretty much just has the MacBook Air and the MacBook Pro, End of list. And before you ask, yes, I need to have a laptop for the sake of portability. When my industry normalizes, it won't be weird for me to head to shows and launches and the like, and I need to take my computing with me. Also, I'm not completely unfamiliar with Windows, so I'm not exactly starting from scratch. Most of my work is done in the cloud or on platform-agnostic software. I use Adobe Creative Suite for audio and video editing, so I can get that on Mac or PC, no worries. As a matter of fact, my job might actually get easier once I start recording directly into Audition rather than record into GarageBand and export. One other side note, which really doesn't affect me too much, but it's that the open software ODB, which allows you to stream media to stuff like YouTube, really only works on a PC, not on Mac, like at all. There are a number of functions that I've been missing using a Mac, like being able to record the output from an audio source natively. There are definite pros and cons to both Windows and Mac. Then came the M1 event, which we discussed last week and even further in the last segment. And the things got simpler and more complicated at the same time. On the one hand, just after the event, I decided I wasn't interested in beta testing Apple's new hardware. The M1, for as powerful as Apple was touting it, is still Gen 1 hardware. And keep in mind, this is my primary PC, so I really can't afford to make too many compromises. I won't have anything to fall back on. If the M1 won't cut the mustard, I cannot have that. Of course, then the reviews started to drop and it turns out the M1 is a beast and a half. In particular was Jaime Rivera's look at the M1 from Pocket Now. He intentionally bought the base model MacBook Air and he was able to edit and export ten minute videos on that machine without breaking a sweat. That's not nothing. I probably won't be doing complicated stuff in terms of video for a while, so I'd be doing less than Jaime, and it sounds like the MacBook Air would work pretty well for me. But again, Gen 1 hardware, so I wrote off the Mac. Sad, but here we are. Now getting back to Windows, remember that wide variety of hardware that I mentioned that Windows brings to the table? Well that's also kind of a problem, because wow holy crap there's a lot out there. Also, I haven't really been in the market for a new laptop for almost a decade, and I'll be honest, I I really hadn't kept up with what was out there. That's where co-producer Cliff and Ryan St. Andrew really stepped in in a big way. Ryan just got done building a gaming PC for his son, so he did a lot of research into the current hardware that's out there. Cliff, well, this is just what Cliff does. He's usually the smartest guy in the room when it comes to all-encompassing knowledge of hardware and software in the PC market and the mobile market, and quite frankly, a few other markets. That's why I call him co-producer Cliff instead of, you know, just Cliff. That's also why he's on the Doubting Thomas Monthly Recap. He knows his stuff, so I turned to them. And we very quickly decided that it was going to come down to the GPU. I had a budget in mind, so I couldn't go completely crazy. This podcast is still in the red. But I did have a mental list for what I'd be looking for. I would have definitely liked to have a fingerprint sensor and a touchscreen and a great keyboard, a bunch of I.O. And that last one also disqualified the heck out of the Mac. Hashtag dongle life. I looked at dozens of computers from Dell to Microsoft to HP. The main problem that I had, and again, this kind of sounds stupid, but bear with me, was the ability to test out keyboards. I know that Lenovo keyboards are okay, but honestly, they're just okay. I love, love, love Dell XPS keyboards, so I leaned heavily in that direction initially, but it became clear that... I probably wasn't going to get what I wanted from Dell's, sadly. Then a new competitor entered the arena. Cliff introduced me to MSI. Now, I've heard of MSI, but I didn't really know a whole lot about them as a company. But Cliff showed me laptop after laptop with pretty killer specs that were right in my price range. So I went to Best Buy, and that was the first time I'd been in Best Buy for years. I tested out the keyboards on display there. It turns out that Razer has some decent keyboards, BT-dubs, but they only had two MSI display models available. One keyboard I liked, and the other one was hot garbage. Uh, yeah, so if I was going to buy MSI, I needed a very solid return policy. Enter Target. Target. My local Target specifically. Target had a configuration of this laptop right in my price range and kind of what I was looking for. Plus, I found out by actually visiting the store that they have a 30-day return policy. But I bought the laptop close enough to Christmas that the return policy is actually 30 days after Christmas. So in my case, it's actually more like a 65-day return policy. Like, wowza, that's awesome. I can really get moved into this thing and decide if I really, really like it with no pressure to make a final decision. Of course, Target also did not have a display model, so it came down to a gut instinct. I pulled the trigger, and yikes. Now, what's funny here is that I just bought a $1,000 iPhone as a review device, but spending $1,200 on a laptop freaked me the hell out, and I really have no idea why. All things considered, $1,200 for a laptop that's able to push out videos is an amazing deal. Of course, if Jaime Rivera is right, I could have done the same thing with this $899 MacBook, but that's a different conversation. So, who is the winner, you might be wondering? Well, as it happens, the unboxing for this laptop just dropped over on my YouTube channel, and I'm not going to be that guy. I'm going to tell you what I got here, but still, go check out the unboxing, because I honestly think it's my best video yet. So, here it is, and I should be mentioned that I'll also be reviewing this in a future episode, so you'll get a lot more detail then. But I got an MSI GL75 Leopard 17.3-inch laptop. It's got a 144-hertz screen, 10th-generation Core i7 processor, GTX 1660 Ti GPU. There's 16 gigabytes of RAM and 512 gigabytes of SSD storage. There's also an empty bay in there for a second hard drive, and 4-terabyte hard drives on Amazon are like 130 bucks. so... Me thinks that bay won't stay empty for long. This thing weighs 5.5 pounds, so I'm not looking forward to lugging this around Las Vegas, believe me. I may very well be upgrading the memory in here as well. 16 gigabytes is good, but 32 sounds a lot better, doesn't it? So there's the machine, and as it happens, I'm recording and editing this podcast on the machine. It's way too early for me to give opinions on it, so you'll have to wait for that. In the meantime, that I can say I'm excited to give this a try. Also, I thought you might like a bit of insight into how I came to this purchasing decision. It was not an easy one to arrive at, but ultimately I made it. And maybe this will help you if you ever need to make the same decision. (laughs) So that's going to do it for this episode of the Benefit of a Doubt podcast. I'd like to thank TCL for the TCL tab review unit. And I want to remind you that TCL received no editorial oversight nor preview of this show. They're hearing it for the first time alongside you. I'd like to thank Cliff Thomas for all of his hard work behind the scenes and for his help in picking out the new computer, which I've been using all week. And it's frankly pretty baller. But most of all, I'd like to thank you for listening and for giving me the benefit of the doubt.